in the first place. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Cathay Pacific's Flight Attendance Union says it will begin a work-to-rule campaign tomorrow, despite the airline's insistence that it has addressed concerns about staff rosters. But the union said it had withdrawn an application to stage a rally today after the airline refused permission for the protest to take place on its premises. Andrew Chorovsky reports. The Cafe Pacific Airways Flight Attendance Union said last month that it was considering a work-to-rule protest to seek better roster arrangements and longer layovers for its members. It says the airline hasn't responded to its demands and that management rejected a request for a meeting yesterday. However, Cafe says it's been communicating directly with cabin crew and has implemented changes to its rosters from this month in response to their concerns. It told passengers that services will continue as scheduled. In a separate development, CAFE has followed Hong Kong Express in cancelling some flights to Japan next month in response to restrictions imposed by the Japanese government. And the cap on tickets for the cross-border high-speed rail link has been boosted again due to high demand. Mike Weeks has the details. The government is adding another 6,000 tickets today, raising the quota to 20,000 trips across the border each day. It's the second increase this week, with an extra 4,000 tickets per day added on Monday. In a social media post, the Transport and Logistics Bureau said it was happy to announce a further rise in the quota after discussions with mainland authorities, adding that there's high demand for tickets ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday. Northbound tickets had been sold out for several days. But lawmaker Gary Jung said the authorities are still being too conservative with ticket sales and the capacity of the trains should serve as the cap on passenger numbers as cross-border travel picks up again. High-speed services to Guangzhou restarted on Sunday after a three-year break due to the coronavirus pandemic. That's all the news from RTHK. Thanks, Barry. Well, good morning. It's Wednesday, the 18th of January, and this is James Ross. Uh, in the headlines, China's economy slowed sharply in the fourth quarter, dragging down 2022 growth to one of the worst in half a century and increasing pressure for more stimulus measures. A GDP grew 2.9% from October to December and slower than the 3.9% in the third quarter. But the rate was still more than the second quarter 0.4% growth and market expectations of 1.8%. Growth for the whole of 2022 was just 3%. Speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Vice Premier Liu He says China welcomes foreign investment and will continue to open up. His comments pitching global leaders are one of the clearest signals that Beijing is keen to re-engage on key issues and attract foreign money as it tries to jumpstart an economy that grew just 3% as we heard last year, one of its worst showings in 50 years and missing a 5.5% target. Well, Japanese 10-year government bond yields topped the Bank of Japan's policy ceiling for a third session yesterday. That amid swirling speculation that policymakers could tweak stimulus settings when their meeting wraps up today. The BOJ could perhaps make further changes to its yield curve control, possibly raising the cap and effectively tightening policy by allowing the 10-year bond yield to shoot higher. 
In other Davos news, speaking to Bloomberg, Chancellor Olaf Scholz said he's sure that Germany will avoid a recession this year, offering reassurance uh, for Europe's largest economy as it faces down Russia's energy squeeze. Germany is enduring the winter energy worries in better shape than feared just a few weeks ago. And Mr. Schultz said that diversifying gas supplies has been critical in helping to keep the economy going. Money is the key to tackling the climate crisis. Uh, so says U.S. climate envoy John Kerry, also in Davos. Uh, governments, businesses and financiers must throw sufficient financial resources behind decarbonisation technologies in order to accelerate the energy transition and emissions removal needed for the world to reach net zero emissions. Uh, so John Kerry says, uh, the lesson I've learned, he went on to say, in the last years is money, money, money. Goldman Sachs reported a bigger-than-expected 69% drop in fourth-quarter profit as it struggled with a slump in deal-making and weakness in its wealth management business. Goldman's investment banking fees fell 48%, while revenue from wealth management dropped 27%. Uh, meanwhile, Morgan Stanley reported a 40% year-on-year drop in fourth-quarter net income to $2.2 billion as record revenues in its wealth management business failed to offset, offset a sharp fall at its investment bank. Those losses contributed to the S&P 500 closing in the red for the first time in five days and the Dow dropped the most in a month. Uh, shares in LVMH rose to a new record high in Europe, giving the luxury goods group a market cap of 400 billion euros for the first time and cementing its lead as Europe's most valuable company. Like other luxury companies which are heavily exposed to China, LVMH has already benefited this year from the mainland's fast reopening. Well, we'll be joined on Money Talk today by William Pesic, a Tokyo-based journalist and author uh, Barry Wood, RTHK's international economic correspondent in Washington, D.C., and Sunil Keshap, uh, director at FinMed. Don't forget, if you have any questions for our guests, you can email us at moneytalk at rthk.hk, text us on 63935925. Our Facebook page is Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, and on Twitter, we're at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Well, let's have a quick look at the market, starting on Wall Street, which was back after Monday's Martin Luther King holiday. Uh, the Dow fell after those disappointing results from Goldman Sachs, a Goldman plunging 6.4%, while insurer Travelers dropped 4.6% after it disclosed $459 million in estimated catastrophe losses, reflecting the hit from last month's winter storm in the U.S. The Dow finishing down 1.1% at 33,910. Uh, the S&P 500 slipping 0.2% to 3,990. The Nasdaq rising a fraction to 11,095. Despite spending much of the day's session down, European stocks closed slightly higher overnight uh, thanks to brisk buying in the final hour. Investors digested weak GDP data from China and tracked earnings from those U.S. banks like Goldman and Morgan Stanley. Uh, the ongoing World Economic Forum was also in focus. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva spoke in Davos and predicted that global economic growth will bottom out this year. The pan-European stock 600 rose 0.4% to 456.04. Germany's DAX up 0.3% to 15,187. France's CAC 40 up half a percent to 7,077. 
Uh, the UK's FTSE 100 ending down a fraction at 7,851. Hong Kong stocks ending in negative territory yesterday after data showed China's economy grew at its slow- slowest pace in more than 40 years. The Hang Seng falling 0.8% to 21,577. The Shanghai Composite down 0.1% to 3,224. And the Shenzhen Composite barely moving, inching down a fraction to 2,094. Uh, the Nikkei 225 fell 2.5% in Tokyo to 26,568. That after the Bank of Japan modified its yield curve control tolerance range while still holding those already ultra-low benchmark interest rates steady. In commodities, Bloomberg reporting that the number of oil futures contracts held by traders rose to a six-month high, uh, pushed up by optimism that China's economic reopening will spur extra demand for raw materials. Uh, Total open interest, as it's known, rose to 5.24 million contracts, the highest since June. Holdings up by about 10% so far this year. Uh, Brent crude currently trading up 2.6% at $86.68 a barrel. Copper is up two-tenths of 1% at $422.30 a pound. Spot gold currently standing at $1,908.70 an ounce. In the bond market, the U.S. 10-year bond currently showing a yield of 3.55%. In currencies, the euro buying a dollar and eight cents. The U.S. dollar standing at 128.17 Japanese yen. Uh, the yen hovering around an eight-month high against the dollar, up nearly 20% uh, since October. The pound buying at 9.6 Hong Kong dollars uh, this morning. The yuan standing at 6.77 against the US dollar. Uh, Bitcoin currently at 21,301 US dollar. Uh, Bitcoin charging up again so far this year, dragging that crypto market off the floor. The number one cryptocurrency has clocked a 26% gain in January so far, leaping 22% in the past week alone, breaking back above the $21,000 uh, level and putting it on course for its best month since October 2021, just before the big crypto crash. Let's take a quick look at uh, the ASX 200 in Sydney, uh, currently up a fraction at 7,393 and looking to Hang Seng futures, uh, the market opening by the looks of it almost unchanged. Well, it's uh, now 13 minutes past eight. Let's say a very good morning to our guests. Uh, first of all, uh, William Pasek, a Tokyo-based journalist and author on the line. Good morning, Willie. Hello, James. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, also, let's say hello to uh, Barry Wood, uh, international economic correspondent for RTHK in Washington, C- uh, D.C. Uh, good morning. Good evening, Barry. Good morning to you, James. And let's say good morning to uh, Sunil Keshap, who is director at uh, FinMet. Uh, good morning, Sunil. Good morning. So, recession or no recession, what do we think? Is, it, is there going to be one? Barry, do you want to kick us off? What, what, what are you thinking? We're seeing some sort of positive vibes at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We really are. I'd call it a rebound, a turnaround. But uh, as to recession, I think you could make the case that Europe has been in recession. So, there are signs that things are getting better. I think the principal positive news for Europe has been that this is so far a very mild winter and the gas price has come down by 50%. So those huge gains, what was it up? 700% hmm. a year ago and six, eight months ago, that's come down. So I think Europe is, if it's lucky, 
on the other side and 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 beginning to recover. It Here seems to States, have, it seems to have weathered the storm, doesn't it? Somehow, you know, the 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 vibes were so bad for Europe getting through the winter with the with the gas and oil. Um, but but it seemed to have got there, doesn't it? Well, maybe. I think the big question mark is Ukraine, because uh, you know here's the American chief of staff of the military meeting with his Ukrainian counterpart. There's this rush to get tanks to Ukraine. That could either mean that the Ukrainians are super confident or super in need, almost desperate. I don't think we know. So I think Ukraine is the big one for the question marks over Europe. Willie Pesek in uh, Tokyo, recession or no recession? What, what are you thinking, Willie? I guess I'm a little more worried about the year ahead. I mean, I think you know Barry's points are well taken. I mean, the U.S. certainly continues to surprise us uh, with its stability and the upside surprises here and there. And you know, if you look at the trajectory for oil prices, things look uh, better for the U.S. You know, I think China. I was surprised by how you know how sort of how good uh, China seemed to end 2022. I was expecting a much bigger cratering, if you will, of GDP. But I think that. You know, where China's concerned, the headwinds are still mounting as we speak. And I know China's reopening, but there's still a very open question about the extent to which China can return to 5% growth this year. And my bigger question is not the, the quantity of growth, but the quality. You know, are we going to see this kind of stimulus boom that leaves China's economy even more unbalanced going forward? Or are we going to see a return to the reformist mindset that President Xi Jinping talked about 10 years ago, but hasn't really uh, relocated since. So it's kind of an open question. So it'll be a very interesting year, certainly. On the show yesterday, we talked about a lot of fast <laughs> peddling going on uh, in China to uh, to catch up. Is, is is that the case, do you think, at the moment? Are, are they uh, perhaps uh, panicking up a bit uh, there in Beijing? Willie? Well, I, I think... Yeah, I think panicking is, is a strong word, but I, I do think that there is a there is a kind of whole of government focus on getting the economy back to 4%, 5%, even 6% um, by the end of 2023. Absolutely, because I think that, you know, I think President Xi Jinping is wise enough to know that he's had a really rough few years here, uh, that, the, you know, the crackdown on, on big tech in China has sent trillions of dollars of capital running away from China. I think in many ways, um, President Xi Jinping's uh, commitment to, you know, capitalist market forces is very much in question. So I think that he does realize that he does have a certain amount of uh, legacy rebuilding to do. But I, I think that there will certainly be a very big focus on stimulus. I just kind of worry about, you know, will we see more bad behavior in the property sector and that sort of thing going forward? I think about moral hazard. But in the short run, yes, I mean, certainly it's all about stimulus, stimulus, stimulus. Still, Chinese, uh, China's economy is slowing so sharply in the fourth quarter. Is that um, going to cause us big problems this year? Do you think we're going to see that recession that has been talked about so much? Uh, I'm a bit more optimistic uh, because I think compared to last year, beginning of last year, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase, I think last year we had, with regard to China, we had unknown unknowns because we didn't know how China is going to react to to the COVID situation, what's going to happen with regard to technology, property, all those things. Um, and now, at least they've given the right direction, saying this is what we want to do. We want to open up the, uh, the, the economy. Um, this is how we're tackling COVID. Uh, and so now what we have is a known unknown, right? And I think um, both the panelists mentioned that we, we don't, you know, we know that they're going to open up, but 
the path they take to open up is is the one that's unknown and you can put probabilities across that but at least we're in a better situation this year compared to last year Business leaders in Dallas expecting uh, a China reopening and uh, resilient emerging Asia economies to propel growth in 2023. Um, Hong Kong Exchange and Clearings Chairman uh, Laura Cha said that China's reopening will be the major event of the year. Uh, in uh, with some words at Davos, lockdown over the last three years has created pent-up demand domestically. Increased consumption and the pickup of the manufacturing sector will be good factors uh, for global growth. Um, Davos is obviously in focus uh, this week, guys. Um, you know, there's always a lot of talking in what is uh, essentially a talking shop uh, in Switzerland. Are we seeing anything of interest so far coming out of Davos? Barry, are you seeing anything um, that could uh, impact? No, not at all. But just to go back to what Sunil was saying and, and William as well. Look, if China was closed for three years, and you could make that case, maybe you know, a few months here or there on the other side, <coughs> suddenly you reopen, and you do it quickly with lifting all the COVID restrictions. I mean, what would one expect? You'd expect over the Chinese New Year, tremendous interest in people getting out, not just of their flats, but getting out of the country and traveling. And that's gonna to happen to the economy. I think we're going to see an extraordinary rebound in China, and that might have to do with why we're seeing copper prices soar while we're seeing oil prices go up. You know, I think the world is sort of getting ready for a Chinese explosion. Now, maybe those are too strong a sentiment, but it just seems to me that's likely, more likely than, you know, a recession. I'm not discounting recession because there, there are too many question marks, but China is a big factor here. Yeah, and I think that in Davos, that's the one thing that stood out is is the re-engagement by China with the world community, right? The fact that physically they've come out and meeting people, which didn't happen for three years, uh, and now you have a situation where they're trying to engage, understand what the international partners need. So for me, that's the biggest story for Davos this week. Mm. Uh, Woody, you seeing anything of interest out of Davos? Well, I think for me, the most interesting part of Davos this year is what's happening on the sidelines. So you have Janet Yellen, who will be meeting with senior Chinese officials. And I think that this is a very important meeting because I do think you've seen different signals coming out of Beijing in the last, say, six weeks or so, a more conciliatory tone, if you will. You've seen China uh, dial back some of its efforts and rhetoric on, you know, basically auditing of, of Chinese firms listed in the U.S. And you have seen, the, I think, the White House has said, look, we're clamping down on China, but we're very open to talking going forward. So I do think that 2023, one of the most optimistic things we could see is for U.S. and Chinese officials to sit down and say, you know, look, we have a lot of differences. but We also have a lot of common needs and goals and common objectives for the year ahead. Let's at least, you know, sort of compartmentalize these issues and sit down and talk. So I think this is one of the more interesting first steps in that direction on the sidelines of Davos that is really worth watching, less so what's happening inside the meeting itself. Uh, Boy, William, I really agree with what you're saying there. I think that uh, in the case of Japan and the United States, we've got a situation where both countries have to thread the needle. Here they're being very tough on China with defense. The American-Japanese military alliance has been strengthened in the last few weeks. No question about that. And yet, Who's the biggest trading partner for Japan? It's China. Who's the biggest trading partner for the United States outside of North America? It's China. 
So how are you going to do both those things at the same time? The optimist would say, yes, they can do it. And I guess, I guess I'm in that camp. The quantity is, I guess, that it is such a balance, isn't it, Barry? You know, the, these things are all so interlinked, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and, you know, we'll have to see what happens. Look, there are still question marks in the United States. I mean, what's going to happen if the Fed continues to raise rates? I mean, we know they're going to do it at the end of the month, 25 basis points. But, you know, we've got lots of question marks about this crypto business. That trial of Mr. Bankman-Fried <coughs> isn't going to happen until October. But there could be many more developments happen on crypto that could be very disconcerting for the market. Plus, you've got something that if the Fed is raising rates and you get some kind of rebound in terms of think people thinking pessimistically, saying we don't have enough workers or the economy is going to slide back into something approaching deceleration or recession, that could affect things negatively as well. Yeah, Sunil? Think, yes, I think that's one thing quite important, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Janet Yellen is talking to the Chinese, because what you have is a situation where the rest of the world is tightening monetary conditions, um, tightening fiscal ex expenditure, and you're going to have China moving in the opposite direction. They're reducing interest rates, they're giving fiscal stimulus, and I think what they would want to come to is some kind of agreement about how to balance that, because you wouldn't want the, the tightening to be... Uh, to be in the West to be affected by the loosening taking place in China. Talking of low interest rates, uh, let's turn to Japan for a moment. Um, the policy meeting of the BOJ underway. Some <coughs> announcements perhaps expected uh, this morning or later today. Uh, Willie, you're there in Tokyo. W what's going on with the, with the BOG, BOJ and those uh, interest rates and the yield control curve and so on? Give us a bit of an oversight, can you, of that? Well, pardon me for a bit of shock that uh, Japan is suddenly in the headlines the way it's been in the last couple of months. I'm used to editors around the globe saying, Japan, no thank you. Um, suddenly we're everywhere. Um, I think um, I think the Bank of Japan has a kind of what I would call a Frankenstein problem. I think they've spent the last 23 years basically uh, you know, building this giant central bank monster of hoarding government bonds, hoarding the stock market via exchange-traded funds, and now it's coming back to remind Tokyo who's in control. And it's not really the Bank of Japan. You know, basically a month ago, you saw the BOJ do the slightest tweak it possibly could to remind the world that it's out there and markets absolutely, uh, you know, quaked. And so I think that today will be a fascinating moment for Governor Kuroda, who we should remind ourselves will be gone in a couple of months, right? Mm. He's retiring mm. in March. We don't really have a replacement in sight just yet. So... I mean, my basic feeling is that today you will see some, perhaps some minor tweaks from the BOJ. I'm not expecting a major step away from yield control. It could happen, but if it does, the stock market would basically plunge, bond yields would rise, and this Frankenstein problem would become even bigger. So I think for the BOJ today, the, the idea is to basically tweak things in, in the different, perhaps allow 10-year yields to trail a bit higher but i think the idea of a major major shift in policy today um is a bit of a reach given global conditions i could be very wrong about that i could feel very dumb in 10 hours but <laughs> that's yeah. my gut feeling <laughs> we'll see we'll hold you to it um the new governor of course could could take policy in different directions uh, if if perhaps uh, he or she is from uh, an internal the internal side or from external um, generally are people expecting an external candidate do you think uh, to pop up uh, willie 
Well, I mean, basically, you know, I think most people assume that the deputy governor uh, will, will get the nod, but there could be an official coming in from the outside. Remember, Governor Kuroda did come in from the outside. He'd been at the, the uh, Asian Development Bank for the previous seven to eight years. They brought him back to Tokyo. He was outside the BOJ system. There could be a dark horse candidate. But you've seen Prime Minister Kishida in recent weeks already talking about the problems that Japan faces are not really uh, up to monetary policymakers. It seems to be that in many ways, Prime Minister Kishida is reminding the BOJ not to go too far in terms of raising interest rates, in terms of tapering, in terms of allowing the yen to rise. And so I do assume that whoever Prime Minister Kishida does choose to replace Kuroda will be a team player, because one of the problems Japan has, this Frankenstein problem, is that, you know, basically the Bank of Japan owns more than half of the bond market. It's the biggest investor in stocks. And any step away from this 23-year-old 23 policy of the BOJ pushing its, you know, its tentacles further and further into markets will have very, very catastrophic effects mm. for the Japanese economy. And if you're Prime Minister Kishida and your approval ratings are in the 30s, is it really a great time to be shaking up the economy in ways that even Prime Minister Abe didn't do in eight years in power? Right. So, I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting. So, Neil, do you, th- you have any thoughts on Japan? No, I, 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 the only thought I have is it's a very complicated market. And, uh, you know, we see it seems to be just rolling along in a certain direction, having a momentum by itself. So it's, you know, I agree with the comments that Willie made. Is that it's very difficult for it to change directions. Even the slightest tweak can, t- you know, create so much commotion in the markets. Barry? That's very well, well you know. Oh, I mean, William's got it. I think uh, this is a complicated place. You're right, Sunil. <laughs> um, Barry, you know, it's been a bad day for the banks uh, with the earnings. Um, what, uh, what message is that sending? Uh, not going to be a good year, 2023, for, for the big ones. Actually, the banks did pretty well in 2022. Like, well, technology, you know, tanked. It was terrible. I think uh, we're going to have lower earnings because the economy slowed. But I don't make too much of it. I think that, uh, you know, Goldman laying off people, bravo. I mean, you know, the excesses in that industry are are legend. So uh, I don't think anyone's going to feel sorry for that. I don't think there's any sense of crisis either. Okay, well, we'll uh, see with interest uh, how it shapes up. Uh, Let's say thank you very much uh, to all of our guests uh, this morning. That's uh, Barry Wood, who is RTHK's international economics uh, correspondent in Washington, D.C. Also say thank you to Willie Pasek, a Tokyo-based journalist and author, and Suril Kaishab, a director at uh, FinMet. Um, Let's have a quick look at the markets before we go. Uh, The S&P ASX 200 in Sydney is up a fraction at 7,000. 390. The Nikkei 225 up six tenths of one percent at 26,292. Uh, the Kospi is down two tenths of one percent at 2,373. Uh, futures looking to an opening of the Hang Seng almost unchanged. Uh, looking at the weather, mainly fine and dry, cold this morning. The maximum temperature around 17 degrees during the day. Uh, fresh to uh, moderate uh, northeasterly winds, occasionally strong offshore at first. The outlook mainly fine in the next couple of days. Cloudier with temperatures rising slightly on Lunar New Year's Eve and Lunar New Year's Day. The cold weather warning is in force. The red fire danger warning is also in force. Uh, it is currently 12 Celsius, uh, 57% relative humidity. This is James Ross with Money Talk.
Uh, I will be back with you on Saturday for the greatest hits of music at ten past six. But right now, before back chat, here's the news headlines with Barry. Lawmaker Gary Zhang says there's no need for quotas on express rail tickets to the mainland. The high-speed train service resumed on Sunday, one week after the mainland border reopened. Authorities have since twice raised the ticket quota to cope with demand. It's now at 20,000 a day. Mr Zhang said the authorities can limit the number of passengers simply by adjusting the frequency of trains. First of all, all the tickets, they are sold in a real name system. So under the current train timetable, there is naturally a limit over there already. Uh, like, for example, we are having 39 trains to Shenzhen and Guangzhou. The capacity of each train is around 600 people per train. So naturally, we already have uh, 20,000 passenger capacity for each day. A property agent says there's been a significant bounce in sentiment and activity since the mainland border reopened a week and a half ago. Nicholas Brook, the chairman of Professional Property Services, says mainland buyers have been targeting new projects in Hong Kong as investment properties or second homes. He said that unlike local buyers, mainlanders often pay in cash, meaning they can negotiate discounts of up to 8% and aren't constrained by rising interest rates. He told RTHK he expected property prices to flatten in these short to medium term and edge up as much as 5% in the second half of the year. We've seen a downturn of about 15% over the last 14-15 months and people were forecasting a further adjustment, downward adjustment to 5-10% to but I think what's happened is this interest in the opening of the border has meant that that potential downturn I think is likely to stall if you like. We're going to see a flattening of the market. The downward adjustment if you like is probably now unlikely to occur and then begin to edge upwards if you like. We might see 3 to 5% uh, in the second half of the year. Chief Executive John Lee says he hopes to remove all remaining COVID restrictions by the end of this year. He also told the Commercial Daily newspaper he wants to end the compulsory wearing of face masks by the end of March. A University of Hong Kong infectious diseases expert, Ivan Hung, said easing the rules as soon is possible because the SAR's population has a high level of hybrid immunity from vaccinations and earlier infections. Definitely a very possible and realistic plan to lift all the uh, infection control measures within this year. Uh, in fact, I think this could be done even earlier, perhaps first of all lifting the isolation order after the Chinese New Year if there's no further surge of cases. And secondly, perhaps removing the mask mandate in early March will also be, uh, be feasible. Cathay Pacific's Flight Attendance Union says it will begin a work-to-rule campaign tomorrow, despite the airline's insistence that it has addressed concerns about staff rosters. But the union said it had withdrawn an application to stage a rally today after the airline refused permission for the protest to take place on its premises. Andrew Tarofsky reports. The Cafe Pacific Airways Flight Attendance Union said last month that it was considering a work-to-rule protest to seek better roster arrangements and longer layovers for its members. It says the airline hasn't responded to its demands and that management rejected a request for a meeting yesterday. However, Cafe says it's been communicating directly with cabin crew and has implemented changes to its rosters from this month in response to their concerns. It told passengers that services will continue as scheduled. In a separate development, CAFE has followed Hong Kong Express in cancelling some flights to Japan next month in response to restrictions imposed by the Japanese government. It says passengers will be moved to other flights and customers don't need to get in touch. 
Prosecutors in Brussels have struck a deal with one of the main suspects in a corruption scandal at the European Parliament that's alleged to involve Qatar and Morocco. Both countries deny claims that they bribed officials. A former politician in the chamber, Pierre Antonio Panzeri, has promised to tell all in exchange for a reduced prison sentence. The BBC's Jessica Parker has more details. We're told that he has undertaken to make substantial, revealing, truthful and complete statements regarding the involvement of third parties 